I'm Joe Devine and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Today I'm joined by James Montague. Uh, we're going to talk about West Ham United, David Gold and David Sullivan. Recently, James contributed two scripts to the YouTube channel uh, and we looked at the backstory of Gold and Sullivan. Very interesting guys. Uh, got their start in the sex industry and are now real estate moguls. So we track their history. We talk a lot about the Olympic Stadium deal, and other topics related to that. So uh, that's who I'm chatting with today. But before we get started, firstly I'd like to say thanks to everyone who's been to check out tifofootball.com. Our new website has finally launched. The response has been lovely. We think it looks great, and uh, we're really glad that most people who've been to visit the site think it looks great too. Uh, so that's that's been really nice. Um, there's articles, interviews, videos, podcasts going out every day, so please do, if you have a moment of, of, of time, you can check it out on your mobile, check it out on your tablet, your computer, whichever device you so choose. But yeah, please go and have a look, tifofootball.com, that would be fantastic. Also, today's podcast is sponsored by canvassist.com. Now, Canvassist, they provide one of the largest collections of football canvases for your home. And they're really cool, actually. I've been on the website. I'm really pleased that we're sponsored by Canvassist because I think it relates really well to what we do. A mixture of football and art. Um, just to clarify, uh, Canvassist is spelt C-A-N-V-A-S-I-S-T dot com. And there'll be a link in the description of this podcast. There'll be links on the website and on the YouTube channel as well. So please go and check them out. Uh, Fortuitously, it's coming up to Christmas, and I think it's actually uh, very useful because they're very reasonably priced. I'm flicking through now the football section. It's alphabetically sorted. So Aaron Moy's Huddersfield Town canvas set is first. I'm sure that's that's quite niche, but it will appeal to some. But they look really cool. That they're, they're a lot of them are canvas sets, so they're sort of five or six separate sheets of canvas uh, that you arrange together on the wall. Look really great. There's a couple of Andy Carroll here for any West Ham fans listening to this podcast. But most of the ones I'm looking at start at £15. So in terms of reasonably priced Christmas gifts, it's a boon. Canvassist.com. And in fact, save yourself some money, guys, because if you're like me and uh, you're in a long-term relationship and are creatively spent when it comes to Christmas gifting, you'll end up spending a lot of money on flights to Copenhagen when you don't really want to go there. So don't do that. Go to Canvassist.com. Do go and check them out. Very reasonably priced. And tifofootball.com. There's another plug for you there. Anyway, we're all done now. These intros are getting longer, aren't they? I'm sorry about that. It's it's probably going to keep happening. But uh, hopefully you stick around and enjoy the podcast. Okay, here we go with James Montague. Okay, so today I think we're going to talk a little bit about West Ham, uh, their stadium move, David Gold and David Sullivan, the owners. James Montague, you wrote a couple of scripts for a couple of videos on the owners in the last couple of weeks. And uh, there's, you know, amongst plenty of interesting things around them, notably, of course, the fact that they came from, uh, in some way, the the sex industry, uh, that they've made their way to where they are now. They're worth an awful lot of money. They own 85% of West Ham. And recently, I think probably the most controversial thing that they have done in the last decade is move the club uh, to what is now known as the London Stadium in a deal which 
I think I'm trying to work out, you know, just from some research beforehand, from reading what people are saying about it, who this deal was good for. And I suppose what you could say is that in the long term, it could be very good for the club. Uh, It could be a bit of a financial boon for them. But at at the moment, the team don't seem to be performing very well on the stadium. uh, Sorry, on the pitch, there seems to be, I don't know if you would categorise it as a a lack of um, intensity within the stadium. Uh, So the fans don't seem to be that happy. There was a lot of issues around the the move from the Berlin ground and how that affected the community. And of course, as well, uh, the elephant in the room is is what is seen to be quite a poor deal for the taxpayer. So how do you begin to unpick something like this? For guys like... Sullivan and Gold to say that the stadium deal is one of the most controversial things they've done is quite a, <laughs> would be quite a claim. I mean, if you look back at their business career, um, I, and you know, I mean, I've, I've met uh, David Gold actually. I did a story for the New York Times uh, in 2012, I think it was before the playoff final against Blackpool. Um, and I did a story about this is the, the, the most expensive game in the world, you know, this is the, this is the, the single biggest match where you get the single biggest amount of money for winning you know because effectively if even finishing bottom of the Premier League you got something like 150 million dollars um, and uh, I mean he's got a, you won't be uh, surprised to hear he's got a wonderful place uh, you know you go into this big Surrey mansion he's got the very first FA Cup that he's bought there's a piano uh, like a huge does, does he piano. have adult artwork on he the wall he does though, not have adult it? artwork I mean no. I remember there was a kid w- if, you, if you were there would, would there be anything that would let you know that that was that was where he got his start nothing but often and I've met a few people in the sex industry that's a different story altogether but I remember when I was growing up there was a kid from school whose dad took racy pics and he'd go into his house and his and his entire lower floor was filled with pictures of like kind of quite you know that all women. I mean, it was the eighties, so there's just a lot of pubic hair. I remember when you walked into the you know it, these pictures everywhere. So when you go to into David Gold's uh, mansion, you don't see that. You know, um, very get quiet. There's a, there's a there's a helicopter parked out on the golf course outside. You know, these rolling hills of Surrey. And there's this grand piano. Uh, he's got one of those self-playing grand pianos. So that, that's good. <laughs> uh, which is quite good. And you showed me the FA that's Cup quite tacky. that he had. Yeah, but it was, you know. I don't was, want to be judgmental, but the, the self-playing grand piano yeah, is, a, is a little bit tacky. It, it was the only thing, it was the only misstep, I think, in the in the kind mm. of decor and the ambiance of that place, you know. Um, I was going to say as well, in the first video, you do mention that, that David Sullivan in some way seems to be I don't know if I'd say more proud of 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 of, uh, of the heritage of his, of his background, but he he does that. You know, you quote him as saying that he's happy to tell his neighbours yeah. uh, what industry he works. And in. do you think maybe if you went to David Sullivan's house, you might see evidence of that? I don't think so. Um, but at the same, I mean, you know, David Sullivan is definitely a sex man. You know, he he, you know, had came from a very similar background to David Gold in a way. Um, in that, you know, he had a working class upbringing, but he kind of. You know, I guess kind of aspirational working class, went to university, came out, uh, saw a gap in the market in in the porn industry by working when he was working at a petrol station, earning a kind of 30 pounds a week or something. And, you know, really, really embraced it, you know, uh, saw that there was a market for increasingly um, explicit material. And David Gold was very different. He started off, I mean, he's obviously a bit of an older man, he's in his 80s, you know, and he he went into the industry almost by accident, uh, grew up in a crushingly poor uh, Jewish single-parent home. His dad was a criminal who was in and out of prison. I mean, in his book, Solid Gold, which I, I, you know, I mean, 
it's not, I wouldn't say it's a work of uh, literary genius, but it is a fascinating insight into a man who has come from, from nothing. You know, I mean, uh, his father was in Dartmoor at one point, Dartmoor Prison, describes going there with no money on the train with his with his brother, Ralph. I mean, it was, you know, it's, it's a fascinating read where it, how he came. And he kind, of, he kind of accidentally gets into selling slightly racy comics and, and sci-fi books from this stall. And eventually realizes that that's what people are buying you know and he doesn't call it pornography you know he doesn't doesn't see it as pornography you know it's something something a bit more artistic um and he ends up in court several times goes to the old bailey uh sees himself as a little bit of a larry flint character who's trying to uh fight for kind of freedom of expression and freedom of uh, sexuality in a way you know and and sullivan's very very different he's about money and there's also i mean you know he's gone to jail for living off immoral earnings um you know there's there's all sorts of stories effectively both of them actually make their money in real estate um you know by buying um then down at heel uh, kind of establishments in Soho, which are used for various sex shops and other types of establishments. And of course, over the years, they become increasingly valuable. Uh, gold moves into Ann Summers, which becomes this huge thing in itself. And both of them, in a way, kind of clean their, kind of launder their reputations a little bit and consider themselves really real estate moguls more than anything else. And, you know, they, they, they move into football and they did try to buy West Ham in the early 90s, but there's, there was such a shame then about their background, uh, which I think tells you something about the morality of football and also perhaps changing mores in, in society as well. That having a kind of two guys who are quite open about, even, you know, died in the war West Ham fans, one of them literally born on 442 Green Street outside, you know, desperate to buy the club, desperate to sink money in it, and yet the board didn't want anything to do with do with them as they end up at, at Birmingham City and so I mean this is obviously a long-winded way to answer your question eventually this ends up at this ta- this deal with the, with the British government to take the you know Stratford Olympic Stadium and you know I can kind of see the logic behind it um, West Ham have always been uh, a yo-yo club um, that have been often talked about as a set like you know the country's second team that has a great heritage when it comes to the 66 World Cup team. Um, you know, it's, it's tried to... I mean, it has a reputation for playing football the right way. I mean, I can I think I can remember about a six-month period over the past 30 years when we've played football in the right way. Um, but that's the kind of the, the misconception that many people... And, and so there was always a feeling that this was a club that was a sleeping giant. And there you have on on your doorstep, you know the, the the you know along with the World Cup, the greatest show on earth, you know the Olympic Olympic Games, and there will be this stadium. It's in your borough. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So the deal itself, moving, I can see why they went for it. Um, you know, much bigger. You know, it would be a, a chance to push into the European elite. Uh, and what, for me, what was quite seductive was the idea that by having this. You know, we'd need to attract fans and we would then have £10 tickets for young people, £10 tickets for people in their 20s. And this is the biggest problem with the Premier League at the moment is that the way that the game's changing, gate receipts aren't important, as important to the bottom line as they were anymore. Commercial deals and TV deals have taken over. So, 
you know, it means that young people just aren't going. And BBC just did a, a price survey and found that young people actually interact with football through FIFA or through gambling, but not by going to the game and not by playing the game because they don't have a, a physical representation of it because they're priced out of it. And there is this demographic time bomb that's going to happen when people stop buying season tickets. Uh, the people who could have fell in love with football when it was something that was, you know, closer to the pitch, you know, something that was... Uh, not kind of overly commercialised as it is now, you know, young people aren't going to be there to take the to, to replace them. And so this pitch that you know there would be these cheap tickets was really was very seductive, and it's it's just not worked out that way. And as much as you can say it's not a great deal for the taxpayer, I mean, they've kind of got what they wanted. You know, they the the, the government got what they wanted, which was off their hands effectively um, something which could be in a huge white elephant as a um as an athletic stadium it would be it would be mothballed um it was politically impossible to agree to have it knocked down and turned into a football stadium and it was politically impossible at the time to be built so that it would be a football stadium afterwards so i think maybe west ham might have got got the worst deal you can look at the headline figures of the kind of very small ground rent that it pays um, and you can look at the figures of the conversion costs that was very small. I think it was something like 15 million. Um, but ultimately, it, it has ripped out the soul of the club. Um, I, the bowling ground has changed remarkably since the days when I first started going, standing on the North Bank. I mean, it, you know, the, the stands got a little bit further away. All-seater stadium didn't really do it any favours, but it still had something, and... And that has been taken away. And I don't think it's something that can be changed by getting used to it. You know, it needs to be something fundamental needs to change for that stadium. It is not a football stadium. Um, You know, you feel like you're going to an ice hockey game or an NBA game, which looks great on a spreadsheet, but isn't great for a fan atmosphere. And uh, I think they're going to have to have serious conversations about what to do about remodeling that stadium. And I suspect that might be what happens in the future. Uh, the, the issue of safe standing coming in a, a dedicated area where where you know those older fans who want to stand and want to sing can can be because at the moment the the stadium has no identity and and everybody's a little bit all at sea and it's it's kind of sad I, so I actually I actually think West Ham have actually kind of been if you look at what, what Tottenham are doing and if you look at what Chelsea are doing um, with their new stadiums I mean Chelsea's obviously is being bankrolled or if not loans being kind of you know, uh, sorted out by Abramovich and there's no issue. I mean, it's, it's doubled in cost, whatever. I mean, it's fine. They're, they're going to have a, a purpose-built football stadium. Tottenham, you know, in two years will have a purpose-built football stadium. You know, when you see what's going to come out of those two uh, deals, I think West Ham's deal is going to look very poor indeed. Well, let's have a look at some of those numbers uh, that we were talking about because it breaks down pretty, pretty simply. Um, I think West Ham pay the equivalent of about £100,000 per game to use the stadium, which works out to be around £2.5 million a year. Uh, the club isn't liable to pay for stewarding or heating or floodlights or security or cleaning or anything like that. That's all uh, paid for by the council. Um, and those costs are estimated uh, to total around £1.4 to £2.5 million per year. So in theory, at the top end of that, it kind of cancels out the rent. Essentially, it, it makes the taxpayer nothing apart from any sport that is, is, is taking place on top of I think I think the deal, um, ultimately, you know, and I'm, I'm a big critic of stadium deals, uh, especially if you look at what happens in America, where it, it's kind of where, where we're going is that clubs, 
you know, I mean, over there, franchises kind of demand new stadiums from their councils, from their municipalities, um, or massive tax breaks to keep their franchise in your city. And I wrote about this in the Billionaires Club, uh, particularly with Stan Kroenke, the Arsenal majority shareholder, who did exactly this with the St. Louis Rams, you know, by leveraging, you know, he had hundreds of millions of pounds of subsidy from the from the city and from the from the from the state, and then wanted more, move the club. So this is these kind of deals. You know, we've seen a little bit with, Ma- with the city of Manchester Stadium, uh, again uh, with West Ham United. These kind of deals are going to become more and more prevalent. And as football clubs become more and more unmoored from their geographical locations, I feel that we're going to see much more of these kind of leveraged, like you know, kind of like, well, if you don't like, if you if you don't pay for this, then we're going to move. So I, I feel like in ten years' time, this deal is going to look very uh, almost naive. For for every for everybody uh, concerned, like the, some of the kind of the problems with it, and I think it's absolutely true that um, that that the government and the council won't be making a profit on it. And for for a business that has such a huge revenue and such a huge turnover as West Ham United, I think that is that is scandalous. But you know, I mean, unless something changes, I think this this is you know West Ham are going to be lumbered with the white elephant. West Ham are going to be lumbered with an unsuitable stadium and there there will be a lot of uh, you know laughing at that you know like you got what you deserved and um it, it has worked out exactly as they planned but it, they just didn't think ahead what you know the most important thing is what would that stadium have been like to play football and support a football team in and that that has been the last consideration for everybody involved whether it's Boris Johnson whether it's Karen Brady whether it's Sullivan and Gold it's been the very last consideration where it should be the absolute first consideration would be how to make this a stadium that West Ham could be proud of and could call their own. Um, and then you could make perhaps made a case that it was saving the taxpayer ultimately money by not being a white elephant. Um, let, let's not forget there weren't many, uh, you know, alternatives, although Tottenham legally challenged it, as did uh, Leighton Orient. Uh, it was both basically wanted similar type of subsidy, which Tottenham ultimately got in the end. Uh, not quite yeah. similar. But I mean, I, I don't, I don't blame um, West Ham or, or, or you know, hypothetically any club who would have taken that deal. I think the the problem comes completely uh, from the government side of things, and I think that they were, you know, Boris Johnson in particular was 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 desperate to find some solution to this because in theory you could you could make a a, a pretty good argument that London should never have hosted the Olympics in in the first place and that you know the the legacy that is is spoken of so often is uh, it has just become the legacy of Boris Johnson. Well, I mean, it, I mean it was a successful Olympics, you know. I think people were I mean it seems an age away now that opening ceremony, the pride of that. It was a, a complete a very successful uh, you know event. But ultimately, um it be so strange looking at what's happening in Britain right now. But um you know, something had to be done with the stadium and you know, it was politically impossible to knock it down, so it had to be used. The only really relevant the only end user that could use it would be a football club and so they've just you know square peg round holes and this is this is where we're at with it i think i think one of the one of the reasons that west ham has attracted some criticism uh, for the move is because at the very beginnings of, of of the dealing before anything was confirmed they made some you know overtures to local business owners uh, suggesting that were the move to go ahead that the club would provide 
support, whether it be financial or not, to those local business owners uh, to help you know maintain them during the move. And that never materialised. That never happened. And so I think you know it sort of goes hand in hand with what with what you're saying about the lack of atmosphere in the new stadium, the lack of of, of identity of the stadium, and also the sort of crushing blow of breaking apart a community before from the Berlin ground in the surrounding area and as I said I, I don't I don't blame the club for doing it I, d- I don't think um, well I don't it's think necessarily yeah, I, the wrong move to make not enough has been done for the businesses being left behind and for the area to, I mean this is one of the poorest uh, parts of the UK let alone London I mean Newham is a is a is a very poor part of Britain has a lot of poverty has uh, you know and, and a big business uh, which brought a lot of people in on a regular basis like West Ham United uh, you know the disappearance of that is keenly felt and um you know if you look at the kind of businesses that are now benefiting from being close to you know the london stadium you know these are brands these are uh, international corporations these are weatherspoons these are these aren't small businesses uh, or medium and you can say businesses. the same about the, the the area around the berlin ground like the, the companies that are now benefiting from it are are, are real estate agents you know i mean that it's it's i think it's it's a it's a real problem that that in fact, Karen, Karen Brady said uh, as as the move was taking place um, that the deal demonstrates that we have been true to our word by securing the regeneration of two areas of East London through the move. And I think, in a way, you can you can suggest that 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 sentiment makes sense. In another way, it depends entirely on 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 how what you consider regeneration to be. They talked about gentrifying the area around the Berlin ground, but who who does that benefit? Well, th- this is it, and people like Brady and uh, other lords and ladies in the house of lords um you know know the price of everything and the value of nothing you know for them regeneration is is destroying local communities and replacing it with high property values high rental values <laughs> yeah. you know and that isn't regeneration yeah. that is just destroying upton gardens you know, e23 it, it, it's a disgrace and it, this unfortunately this is something that's happening london wide i mean it's every time i go back to london i find it very i mean i don't want to sound like alan partridge when he's at norwich central saying you know uh, you know shouting about london call it s h i t h o l e you know, <laughs> well, it's funny because the uh, Upton Gardens 23 is uh, is totally pedestrianised, yeah. so much like the pedestrianised Norwich City Centre. Mm. You could go Partridge if you wanted to. I'll go full-blown Partridge later. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's you know, so it, it, it's a lie. And, you know, it's, when you walk around, like, you know, the Olympic Village, and it's just so shamelessly soulless. Um, yeah. And it, that, that's, I think that's what I mean when I, when I was talking about... London hosting the Olympics is is that that you know there's there's two focuses there. The first one is on putting on a good show and putting on a tournament, and that's fine. I don't you know I don't I don't particularly enjoy watching the Olympics. It's not my thing, but I'm I don't care if it if it goes ahead. The second is that idea of legacy, which is something that is that is talked about constantly throughout the construction of of uh, infrastructure for the Olympics, and you see it in every single country where it takes place, and also the World Cup, and you see the problems that come with that, particularly in places like Brazil, you know. And I think you're, you're absolutely on the money there. It, it's just a lie, and if it benefits anyone, it isn't benefiting the people no. who were already living there. And so when I hear people like Karen Brady saying our move is 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 regenerating two areas of east london it's going to gentrify east london i think well, who who is that benefiting other than yourself and as you've already said uh, a series of brands n- you know not not people let's consider for people who don't live in in london who are listening to this 
Um, I think it's you know it's it's well known that it's very it's very expensive to live here. It's essentially impossible for most people to afford to buy a home today, right? And so most people privately rent, and a lot of families privately rent as well. So let's say, for example, that there are families privately renting around the area where the Berlingram was. Gentrification in the short term seems like a positive thing for them. In 10 years' time, their rent goes through the roof. They can't afford to live there, and they have to move. The children have to move schools. They move away from their family because they weren't, you know, they weren't able to buy a home in the first place. Gentrification is good for homeowners. It's not good for private renters. And I think m- most people today who are moving to London in the last decade are probably privately renting. It's uh, it's good for artisan cafes. I know that. So um, it's good for avocado. Yeah, on for toast. avocado on toast. But the, I mean, I guess the one the, the kind of, I guess, looking at the other side, you can look at. Athens 2004 you can look at um what's just happened in Rio really I mean it could it could be a lot worse in that respect you know there the it's, it's almost you know a triumph how how it was organized and there's very little post uh Olympics kind of white elephants like very few and so in, in that respect I suppose it has been more successful than most, but I mean, in a way, London—it was the last thing that London needed. You know, it would have been—it would have been great to have a Manchester Olympics or a Birmingham Olympics. I think that that would have been, made a lot more sense. I mean, East London did not need to be gentrified in that way. <laughs> you know, it needed something else. It needed—it needed more targeted help, and um, you know, and and so I don't think it got that. But you know, ultimately, I think they went in it with the right with, with the right idea. Um, with with an ambitious idea, uh, but their legacy is going to be uh, absolutely determined by how they sort that stadium out, and whether before they leave, before they sell it on to whoever they sell it on to, um, which they will, and probably won't be that long. But they they have to sort out a stadium that they they will leave that stadium. They'll leave the club in the Premier League, and they'll leave that stadium as somewhere that is cheap, affordable to get to, that has an identity, and that feels like a stadium for West Ham United fans and I either either they do some deal where they have to buy the stadium and destroy it and rebuild it or you know some 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 clever way of of you know putting te- permanent seating over the te- you know some way of maybe the safe standing might be an option um but you know something something clearly has to be redesigned there um it, it cannot carry on as it is uh, it, no matter what kind of subsidy they've got for the government for keeping that for, for moving in there, because ultimately people are going to start kind of stop going. Although I think I saw recently figures that that West Ham are now the seventh uh, average highest gate in the world in world football. So you yeah, know, I mean, did, did that that presumably that happened as soon as they moved into the stadium, right? Well, from last season, yeah. So I mean, this is this is I mean the, the figures from last season. I mean. Um, but uh, uh, you know, it, 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 if it carries on like this, and certainly if we get relegated this season, which looks like we, that might happen, um, you know, I mean, that, that, that's the, that's the worry is that suddenly if you've got fifteen, twenty thousand people rattling around that huge stadium, I, I mean, it's it, it's it's going to be disastrous. It's like David Gold in his mansion with the self-playing grand piano, all in his own. Yeah, not a good look. Bring that into the stadium. Um, I, th- I think that listen. I think that, that that's that's absolutely right. And and as I said before, I don't I don't really blame any individual uh, for 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 what has transpired. I think it was probably retrospectively 
you know, the obvious move for, for, for David Golden, David Sullivan and West Ham to make. I think you're right that perhaps there should have been more consideration to what would have made a good football stadium. And that doesn't mean that that, that situation isn't irredeemable in, in the future. I think if there's a problem, it's systematic, you know, and, and I, 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 I do have a problem with that. But I think, you know, m- moving on, I'd be interested to know your opinion as as a West Ham supporter, it, what it means, if it makes any difference to you that the the two owners of, of the football club that you support also support the club and did before they bought it. Does that make any difference or is, well, it, is it the same thing? I think if you look at some of the fans who are happiest with their clubs, then it's not usually... Um, fans who buy their clubs. I mean, Chelsea fans almost have slavish admiration for Roman Abramovich. And why not? You know, I mean, look what he's done to the club. I mean, he's transformed them from a from almost a West Ham-style um, yo-yo club into, uh, you know, into one of the great teams of European football. Won them, you know, the, the Champions League. They've won the league. Uh, they're going to move into this this incredible new stadium that looks great, you know. Unfortunately, they're obviously. Would you say that he's a fan now? Uh, he he, he might be a fan now, but he wasn't when he bought the club. You know, that's the that's the point. Is that the money kind of soothes that? And it's the same when you speak to City fans about Sheikh Mansour. You know, I mean, if, if it is him that owns the club, you know, he you know they 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 absolutely adore him and they see the way that they've run the club as 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 absolutely beneficial as you should do. I mean, you have obviously the fans. You know, you've got Steve Gibson, who's who's popular although Middlesbrough of course got relegated last season you've got Mike Ashley uh, who's the exact opposite they can't wait for him to sell the club if he can do so it's not necessarily the fact that there's somebody that who's a fan but I think what was interesting is that West Ham's kind of swerve into foreign ownership foreign billionaire ownership I mean you had the the you know the Icelandic period where um, you know which was absolutely disastrous because not necessarily that they were overspending more than anybody else overspent, but it turned out that Landesbank, the the, 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 kind of the biggest bank in Iceland, was so exposed during the financial crisis that it literally wiped out the owner's fortune. I mean, it, just bad luck. We got we got the billionaire that lost everything. Um, so from that from that period, uh, West Ham in real in real trouble, real danger of of going out of business, um, perhaps doing a Blackburn, uh, you know, tumbling down the leagues, you know, and. We, there's a series of absolutely idiotic mishaps. You know, the Tevez and Mescherano deal, um, which, you know, I mean, it's so amateurish what, what happened, what transpired, how the club approached it, and just completely starstruck, you know. And these two players, I mean, there's a lot that's been talked about uh, Carlos Tevez saving the club. And ultimately, we had to pay a king's ransom to Sheffield United after losing the case to that effect. But uh, ultimately, it was their introduction into the team that destroyed it. You know, we uh, the Alan Pardew era is probably my, aside from the kind of the couple of seasons that Payet graced us, um, and that's all tied up with me having my young daughter and we were watching the TV together because I was living in Holland and we'd watch the matches and, you know, I had this little song that was kind of about her, but about Payette. So I love that period. But the, you know, period when I was going last regularly to, to West Ham, you know, was that Pardew era when we got to the, you know, to the final of the FA Cup and, you know, and, you know, this, this idiotic deal just completely destroyed that and destroyed Pardew and destroyed, the, you know, if, if, our standing amongst fans in England, I think, uh, and made us very unpopular. So the club had been in in turmoil for a long time, and and Golden Sullivan come in as you know, absolutely 
legitimate, um, real fans of the club. And they're, in a way, they're kind of, they're, they're businessmen in the very modern sense in that they, you know, I mean, I think David Sullivan is a billionaire and, and David Gold is probably a little bit less. But, you know, they do business. They understand modern business. I'm not sure if they understand modern football because if, if you see the direction they've gone in with almost every signing and every uh, coach they've hired, you know, it's, it's not been what other clubs are doing, whether they're looking at... Uh, statistics in the right way uh, whether the, the scouting is is correct or not but how we've now come it's to, not particularly forward facing it, it's it? not you know and so I'm wondering whether it is just that they've got to the age now where they're not making the right decisions you need you need fresh blood in there but that the problem is what what scares me about uh, Golden Sullivan leaving uh, and you, I think you've got to remember they've done a lot of good. They steadied the ship. We've got promotion. We've been back in the Premier League. Um, we had a couple of great seasons, you know, a season and a half uh, that I can remember with them. And, you know, so we've always got that. The move which hasn't worked out for the stadium. Maybe in 10 years' time we'll look back at these as teething trouble. Who knows? Uh, maybe they're more forward-looking at that. But they effectively did save the club. And we should be incredibly grateful for that. The problem is the people who want sack the board, which they were singing after Moyes' first game, 2-0 defeat to Watford. You know, what, I mean, I'm in Belgrade, so I watched it on television. And, you know, aside from 10 minutes, you know, I mean, we missed a hatful of chances and you can't really legislate for that. I mean, we had, I mean, Gomez made three absolutely incredible saves. Um, who do we sell to? And that's the problem. And that's what a lot of, supporters trusts in particular have been raising is that okay you can sell clubs to these very wealthy individuals but who do they sell the club to and who would buy West Ham you know that that will you know have the club in their heart or or at least have the fans or you know if a Chinese businessman comes in and buys West Ham you know they don't they don't know about the bowling they don't know about uh, what it was like to be a match day atmosphere there to go and stand in the north bank or the south bank or the chicken run or, or you know get a sausage on the way or buy a pin badge out you know they won't know any of that they all know West Ham is a team that plays at the Olympic Stadium you know and that's that's the identity of the club and so it's who they sell the club to that terrifies me because you're not going to find people with their money who have their who have that kind of support as misguided as they've been at times the mistakes that they've made you know it, if they sell, if they sell to the type of people that other clubs are being sold to, then, I mean, what what is left of the club? You know, if they don't have a home, if they don't have, uh, if they're not playing the type of football that's been associated with us traditionally, and they don't have owners who have any kind of connection to the club whatsoever, what are we? We're just rootless. We're just floating around, you know, above Stratford, and that's it. We're like in the clouds. <sighs> I guess you could sell to Russell Brand. We could do. I mean, I reckon he could probably pay <laughs> one week of uh, Jose Fonte's uh, wages. You know, I mean, I'm sure he's got a bit of money, but I mean, he's not he's not the character that... that he doesn't quite have the deep pockets that we need, I think. I mean, look at Mike no, Ashley. I, I mean, he's saying so. he doesn't have enough money. I mean, he's worth a couple of billion pounds and saying he's, he's not rich enough to to really take Newcastle to the next level. I mean, that might be because he's a, yeah. he's a tight ass. Potentially as well. What about what about a uh, a Chinese consortium led by Russell Brand? 
I mean, that just sounds like a nightmare. That sounds like that sounds like that sounds like a like wake up in cold sweats. You know, it's like the, all these Chinese guys looking around, thinking, "Who can we? Who can we have to front the deal?" Like, ah, oh, Russell Brand. You know, and they put him there, and you have him like kind of pogoing around like a kind of Victorian street urchin, whilst you know some government government Chinese bank in the background is kind of, you know. I, I, it sounds yeah, that sounds awful. Don't mention it again. It makes me sick. Sounds fun. <laughs> I, mean, I like fun Russell Brand. Get, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, you know, sure. I, I loved hey. I loved him as a columnist in the Guardian and and loved his stuff. And he's 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 a, he's a very good West Ham fan. You know, he's a, goes to yeah. the games and yeah. he's done a lot. For, you know, to raise the profile of the club. But I mean, I would like to think that he wouldn't put himself up as a puppet for a Chinese <laughs> government. It doesn't bank. sound like his style these days. No, no. I think that's probably uh, the antithesis of, of modern Russell Brand. Anyway, that's that's West Ham. Um, before we finish, James, you've got a few exciting bits lined up for the new TIFO website. Do you want to sort of give us a quick, uh, a little preview of anything that, that you're doing that's coming up? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm 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 obviously late with all my deadlines, but um, you know, the big <laughs> don't the, need to know that. The, the big news is that, of course, I mean, the World Cup qualifiers have come to an end. The draw's coming up, and I'm going to Romania. Uh, this weekend to meet uh, Jaime Penedo, the the Panamanian goalkeeper. I think of all the mm. stories, of all the qualification stories of the World Cup, um, I think Panama is probably the big one. I mean, people point to Iceland as the smallest country that's ever qualified, and that is an incredible achievement. But their story's been well known for a long while. And I mean, I remember following them when they didn't get there to the 2014 World Cup, but it came down to the very last playoff against Croatia. Um, shameless plug that's the last chapter of 31 nil uh, my previous book uh, but you know so with the euros and everything it's kind of like it was it was kind of expected even though they're in a tough group panama is really left field you know and uh, world cup debut and you know very interesting country and so you know a lot of these guys playing in in lower leagues and uh, jaime's playing for dinamo bucharest who are playing at home on saturday i'm an hour's flight away uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and see, see him and talk to him. And then, um, I don't know if I've talked to you about this, but there's a great story that I'm going to be doing there as well. I mean, there's actually it's two New York Times stories I did. One of them was I found a one-handed goalkeeper in the fourth division of Romanian football. And uh, I did a story profile of him, and, and it was really interesting. It's one of my favourite stories because it, it really made a difference to his life. You know, like the Romanian media started reporting on him, uh, the story got out into various places and people were inviting him to go all around the world to go and talk and play football. And and so now he's in charge of a... He, he's he's playing for a team called Romprim, which is a fourth division. Um, it's effectively the team of a firetruck manufacturer in, in Bucharest. And so they're playing uh, on Saturday, Stour Bucharest. Now, I did another story for The Times about the fact that there's been this legal battle between... Stour Bucharest, owned by Gigi Bacali, probably anyone who's read Said and Done in The Observer will know Gigi Bacali very well because he's in it almost every week. He's such a controversial, kind of women-hating, gay-hating, uh, ultra-conservative, kind of Trump character in Romanian politics. Been in prison for corruption, but he owns uh, Stour Bucharest, which he kind of acquired through slightly opaque means at the start of the millennia. Uh, and it was originally the army team, famously won the European Cup in 1986, uh, reached the final in 89 and then the army want want the club back they want the branding back and so they won they successfully won uh the court case to get that back uh and they had to try so now Gigi Bacali style Bucharest had to change their name to FCSB and the the canon uh style Bucharest 
are now in the fourth division. Most of the fans, most of the ultras have gone there. So the fourth division in Romanian football has had... Suddenly booming. Tens of thousands of Stalbogares fans turning up with Tifo and, and uh, all sorts of kind of pyro. And these, these, these two stories collide on Saturday afternoon because um, uh, Tudor Mihalescu, the one-handed goalkeeper, and a lifelong Stalbogares fan is now going to be playing... European Cup winners of 1986 down for Uh at the Gentia as well, which is the the, 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 the spiritual home of um, of Stal Bucharest, who interestingly Bacali moved from uh, from the Gentia to move to the to the new national stadium to the Arena Nazionale. Um, so again, doing a kind of West Ham style move, so into this huge stadium which is rarely full. Uh, but the Gentia is the spiritual home and the, and the army being very clever and moved the club there. So at the Gentia, Saturday afternoon, if anybody's listening, does this go out before Saturday? No, it doesn't. Okay. It, will have, it will have been after Getting Saturday, on. But I mean, yeah, so I'm, I am very excited. I'm sitting on the bench apparently. So, so, so I think, I, so, so I think I'm going to write something about that. Do you want that? Please do. Yeah, I do want that, okay, yeah. Right, right. This is an insight into how it works. It? <laughs> yeah. The background. Yeah. Also a little tidbit to add to your Panama uh, bit there. Uh, Panama now, since Ireland aren't making it, the only New Balance sponsored team at the World Cup. So, bit of a faux pas. Ah, what's that film with? Uh, oh, Jerry Maguire. That's what it made me think of. Mm. Like, you know, has one last client they desperately, desperately trying to keep. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, it would be quite. It would be quite the story if Panama go all the way. Can you imagine? Maybe they'll rehire all of their marketing team. Well, anyway. Um, that's uh, sounds like the end of the podcast um, James Montague thank you very much I hope you enjoy uh, what sounds like a, a busy weekend and um, I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon see you next week